Hello, wonderful people of the world, and welcome to season three of Go Out and Talk to Strangers. This is Adi. I'm a nomadic architect and the founder of the new movement, architectural design studio that designs one-of-a-kind, innovative, and creative projects worldwide, using the built environment as a tool to help people thrive. During my world travels, I am constantly meeting incredible people, people who are reshaping the way we live, work, and connect. The reason I started this show is because I want to highlight the ones who are leading the way. This is the place where I host thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and founders of unique projects to share their stories and insights. I want to invite you to be part of the change. If you're looking for something bigger than yourself, if you also feel that we can do better, that standard is simply not good enough, you're in the right place. I hope you'll enjoy today's episode. And I'm very happy to welcome to the show, Ilana Adamson. Hi, Ilana. Hi, Adi. Lovely to, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for making the time and joining me today. I'm super excited for this episode, and I think all our listeners are going to love this conversation. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, not to set the expectations too high, but yeah. No, this is my favorite subject, so I'm very happy, but uh, I've been in a decade where People didn't want to talk about sustainability so much, so it's great to be able to talk about it now. Yeah, it is. And you know what? I'm very happy to have you because I feel like you have a special way of bringing up the topics in, in a way that actually help people implement different ideas rather than just feeling, um, you know, they're not doing enough or not being good enough and just feeling hopeless uh, as we look at the, at the situation as the current status. Okay, so I'm going to tell a little bit about you. And then we're going to start. So Elana is the founder and CEO of Be Better Sustainability. She has 30 years experience in strategic luxury marketing with a deep knowledge of how to jigsaw pieces of sustainable development interconnect in nuanced ways for different industries. She uses both academic and professional work so that her knowledge can provide a firm foundation on which brands can confidently create their roadmap to a sustainable future. She is a Chief Sustainability Officer supporting firms to adapt credibly. Welcome to the show, Ilana. How are you today? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to have you here. And where are you calling from today? I am, we moved, I'm in the UK and we moved to the coast during lockdown and we thought we'd be here for three months and we ended up staying forever. My daughter's now going to college, so we're here for a bit. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, that's so nice. Um, so I want to I wanna understand more about where you're coming from and how did it all start? When did you realize that this is your life's mission? It's so funny. We were talking about this a um, couple of days ago. My godfather was saying that he, um, he, is coming up to his 80s and he was saying he um doesn't think he's ever known what his life's purpose is people always ask him and actually I don't think I knew mine until I had my daughter uh, so she is now 16 so I think I was interested in sustainability before but I think um yeah I th- I know that sounds a bit cliche but it really does give you a different lens on which you view the world when you have a child and and really the custodial nature of of our being on this earth comes into play not that I I was a particularly bad custodian previously certainly the moral 
compass was there but I think it's a different um I think we go on a journey of me my world the world when we're when we're becoming sort of sustainable and and we can be community-minded a lot of the decisions that we make are for self first and foremost maybe that's part of our youth as well but um but I think at, at some point in life hopefully we get to a stage where we start to think about how our choices impact not just in terms of your moral compass and your day-to-day life but um the bigger sort of picture of 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 life really and our purpose on earth really yes so what was the first thing that you did once you realized that this is something that matters yeah i mean i think i was always interested i was very um i was vegetarian from when i was eight or something I, there was a you know a choice i um I was beauty without cruelty that I think I started reading that sort of books uh when I was a teenager late teenager maybe so it's already and I was organic so I was aware of the toxicity of food and that and that sort of thing and and the the wider impact so I think I've always been interested and aware but when I started looking into so one of our clients asked what should we do so this is 20 years ago what should we do about um corporate social responsibility and the green agenda as it was in quotes called um and nobody knew and the more i looked at it the more frustrated i found out because there just wasn't any clear guidance for individuals there was an awful lot of, as you said at the beginning of the of the intro that there's there was an awful lot of you shouldn't do this and you can't do this and this is really bad but there was no what you should do and particularly if you were a business what's the alternative how do you know how do we even view this sort of if we're looking you know and, and and what does that look like do we have no capitalism do we move away from that system inside you know that these things are not disconnected one decision imbalances the others and that you know to make a decision from positionality of you know at the time I was living in London in, in a privileged you know position if we look on a global scale thirty thousand dollars as an income puts you in a position privilege bracket mm-hmm. and then so my positionality of understanding what to do versus somebody that is you know living with the consequences of climate change and on an impoverished um income you know their their ability to make choices is very much compromised less uh, and shouldn't be carrying the burden of our choices so yeah it's 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 a complicated one but i think having a child in particular affords you a lens through which to wonder uh, the world that you're leaving behind you and want to improve that absolutely that's that's very beautiful there is something that you said that really stayed with me i listened to a podcast episode where you were a guest on a different podcast and you said something like companies should be making profit from solving problems not creating them and i really like that mm, yeah i i i wasn't the first person to say that i won't quote who did i can't think at the moment but um harvard certainly did a paper on it and and really we're in a position at the moment that and it is a mantra that that companies should be able to make a point from solving the problems of the anthropocene so the period that we're in right now because profit has come from harming the planet and we are beyond our limits on that and we not we're not suggesting as as it was in this space in sustainability previously it's not to suggest that business can't make a profit it's to suggest that they need to find a way to do that that's helping society and the environment to recover from 
the ravaging of the last few decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. But then when you actually approach projects, I see a lot of founders a bit confused, but how much can we do or how can we interact with local communities in a best possible way? How can we uh, build things in, in a different way? Because I think we still lack the modeling. We need more case studies and more examples of not only not not only not what to do, but what to do. And, and then we can be we can get inspired. So I would really love if you could share uh, a story or a project that you can tell us about that you think is successfully implemented that sustainable mindset and is doing well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the most important thing to say, well, two things that are really important to say. One is the IPCC report. So that's the panel of um, on climate change. And that's 192, I think, countries now. And it looks and it's signed to thousands of different scientists and empirical researchers and, and policymakers that all come together. But it's mainly science and come together to look at what's causing climate change and what the solutions are. And their language is ramped up in this. They've been doing those reports for 30 years, but their language ramped up very much in the ones that we just came out the last two months. And the language has changed to say that, that climate change is one, you know, is absolutely caused by human impact. And the follow up report that we've just had in March says every single increment of every degree in temperature rise now is crucial and critical that we mitigate every bit. So that means that the, the, that shifts the conversation to being every piece of work that each one of us undertakes in this place makes a difference. So every community, every action that we take to mitigate climate rise contributes to preventing a tipping point being reached at 2030, we think that we won't be able to come back from. Mm. So we're in a race against 2030, every single action that some more than others, and we can talk about that if you like, but it's, um, it's everybody should, should be on team fighting climate change, not waiting for somebody else to tell them to do it. The second part of that is that the, the way we apply sustainability, and I'll go what through it means, but it's different in every geography and in each space and for each industry. So there's not one answer fits everywhere. And we don't want that really because part of the problem we have is homogenization. And so You know, we want different solutions to this problem, but there are principles of things that we should be looking at. And, and I think um, I would. So when we talk about sustainability, I think carbon is um, is the spotlight. We know that we want to reduce carbon, but that is an important part of the jigsaw. But it's not the only one. And when we're looking at sustainable development, which is different than sustainability, sustainability would infer that you're maintaining a position sustainable development is looking at this current wealthy generation not taking um all of the resources so one of the underpinning principles of the united nations is leave no one behind so that means that that we're looking to to distribute more evenly wealth across the world, world and, and rise everybody um up along with us and, and we hear that that is happening in the current economic system, but it's not, you know, it's been 30 years that we, we've here or 200 years, 400 years, whatever you want to look at it. Um, and, and it isn't doing that. We know that there are people really struggling in marginalized communities around the world in various different guises, paying 
the price really for the choices that we make for convenience and, and we really need to to be specific about that so these aren't things that we don't have any control over them and somebody else is normally paying the price or the planet or which means future generations so the children will pay the price um so what can you do well carbon is a really important one so we look at reducing our carbon because we know that that prevents climate rise so that's one thing we're trying to prevent climate rise but if you look at biodiversity we still keep taking all of the biodiversity away that doesn't help (laughs) because (laughs) without the biodiversity our climate will also keep reaching going towards that tipping point so we need carbon locked in it's not about not producing any more carbon that's absolutely vital but it's also about making sure all the carbon that we currently have is locked in underground and under the ocean and, and various different guises but we don't have them at the moment they don't exist in a way that we know is going to have any serious impact i'm not saying that it won't in 10 years who know that there's a 2030 deadline of making sure that we mitigate our impact and and to prevent going over 1.5 climate rise mm. some would say that's 1.7 and we know that we we can't wait for this technology to come we could be waiting 15 years for it to come and when it comes great if it's going to help we still need that help then so we need to reduce carbon that's one thing biodiversity is another thing water is another thing diversity and normalizing inclusion is another one so having women's voice indigenous voices at the table because the solutions to unsustainable practices they're going to come from a diverse knowledge base so that might be indigenous wisdom that we've forgotten more than we have retained as as a global society Um, but there are incredible indigenous voices that have held on to this knowledge that it's been passed on through the generations and they've retained this connection to the earth that we have lost to those solutions is key so if you look at indigenous um, spaces around the world they they contain 80% of the world's biodiversity Mm. Um, so that ancient knowledge is something that we need to listen to those that are in positions of power at the moment are not necessarily the ones with the knowledge of how to resolve this problem so having a university degree for instance is brilliant in some of these things but actually it's not as valuable as some of the indigenous knowledge that we've forgotten to listen to so so how we value the people we're listening to in this space needs to to be under the spotlight as well Mm -hmm. i can share from architecture school back i don't know 10 years ago when i was studying it we always talked about sustainable design and uh, lead certificates and all of that but then no one really cared about where the things are coming from Mm. like i could have you know a finishing that is uh, maybe uh, ranked very high on its sustainability rank but it's actually have to come all the way from asia to the middle to the middle east so it doesn't really make sense and i feel like today there is more movement towards zero miles construction materials and zero miles waste management and all those different things where we can understand and when you look at indigenous indigenous knowledge it's not like they made a decision that was just the case right you have to work with whatever resources you have around, uh, you have to, you know, what people were doing before electricity was invented, before we had AC to, uh, you know, comp- compensate on 
you know, the fact that we did a huge glass wall facing west. Now, every time the sun sets, it's just too hot to be in the room. Uh, So Mm. things like this. I would be very curious to know if you can give us, I know it's a very broad topic and I think 40 minutes is not going to be enough, I'm afraid, but let's talk <laughs> about some, some positive impact that we see. Let's, let's get inspired. Yes. Um, we do see lots. And, and as I said, it's, it has to be different in different places. We're seeing individual thing, but it, in terms of the, the push for sustainability i'll you know we talk about the carrot and the stick so we thought that policy the uh, the stick would motivate change we thought that when consumers found out how damaging their choices were that the carrot they would want to make change actually these things sort of happened but not really what we've seen um that's really inspiring to me is the investment community are understanding that this is something that they need to change so when they're looking at their asset base now they are looking at risks and they are calculating climate change into that risk and loss of biodiversity and and diversity and inclusion. So we know that, for instance, in the future firms that don't have central um, values will very, be very unlikely to get talent. So their organisation will struggle to, to maintain the revenue that they used to and therefore um, not retain the, pro- the, the profit margins for the shareholders so they should invest in the things that we've wanted them to invest in for different reasons. But now it's follow the money. So so it's not what I thought I would be um, following. But that's where we're getting a lot of traction because it's now a risk to not be considering climate change. So that's a huge shift in the narrative that it's not an individual story, but it's affecting globally how the markets work and the responsibility of organisations is is shifting away from it just being profit maximization to being their impact on the environment, society, and the community. So that's one of the biggest shifts we're seeing to um, to sustainability. Um, and on individual levels, I think we can. I interviewed um, Matthew from, who's the um, director of corporate social responsibility at Richemont and Richemont look after the brands like uh, Cartier and Chloe and um, Dunhill and um, Omar Puget. So they look after loads of these different brands that are um, heritage brands, luxury heritage brands of 2000 years in existence. These, these firms that he looks after, you know, the responsibility he has of them. I think there might be 30 brands under the banner or something in that region. And his positionality, and this is not uncommon, it's not the most common, but it's starting to become a standard that we look for in leaders. And his positionality is that he is in charge of these brands that um, have this long history. And so my question to him was around the vantage that that gave him. So the the, the ladder that he's standing on, given that it's got such a, a reach back, how far in advance does that put his responsibility he says, yeah, that's to the brands, of course, because he wants these brands to still be in existence when he when he is no longer in charge of them and thriving when he steps down at some point. And I think because when we're in talking about luxury industry, there can't be a bigger luxury than 
than having the time and the energy to care about future generations, to know that what you're doing isn't just a panic thing for right now, but it's something that would affect people in 100 years, 200 years time. And I think that's a real luxury if we're looking at what luxury is, to, to be able to make those lovely decisions. And so I guess in answer to your question, motivating stories is that we have these brilliant leaders in positions of power within organisations where they're answering directly into the financial director or the chief exec. And they're, they're coming at business with heart and mind uh, rather than just profit maximization. And, and I'm really thrilled to see that happen more broadly in, in the workplace because the noise in the marketplace is drowned out by those that have the most profit because they can afford to dominate the narrative. And they're not necessarily the ones doing the good things. So, and they dominate with greenwashing. So when organizations shift their behavior to have you know, leaders with heart and mind at, at the fore of their decisions. It means that the cream in your readership, in your listening, in my audience, that also rises to the top because without a clear understanding of what success should now like. And so the ones that are already in it, we can recognize it then because we're seeing it modeled from big organizations, not all of them, but you'll, you'll start to see the difference there. You know, it feels like the new luxury is being somewhere in nature, probably off-grid, being part of the conscious travel movement. It's not about posting Instagram stories. It's more about feeling connected to yourself, to the earth, media, detox, you know, all those sort of things. But also we see consumers preferring brands that have values that they believe in. And also when you know when you use your money as as a vote to a cause that you believe in. So that's another something that I'm very happy to see. But I, it always feels like we can do more. It always feels like, it's almost like I want to write a book about inspiring projects, that, but it's very hard to find. How can you tell when it's a greenwashing or if it's for real? You know, we bring more jobs, but it's not only about people cleaning the hotel room, right? It's, it's more yeah. than that. How can you tell that a project is really making a difference? Um, we do a lot of education process with the brands and, and the organizations that we work with because we want to be sure that they're not asking us to produce a piece of work that actually they should be embedding um, in the psyche of the company, the, the, the culture of the company. If we're doing that as a tick box exercise, and not including them in the learning process, then we won't do it because we feel like that's greenwashing. Um, but how can you tell? There's lots of different ways. If I would say if the people that are your diversity and inclusion are not reaching senior positions, if you're philanthropic rather than inclusive, so it feels as though you're saying we've made the profit doing bad things in this area or in this region or in this industry and to offset that we're going to throw some money at this project well it's really nice that you've chosen that project and i'm sure that project aligns with the values of the company but what we want to see is that you don't do that damage in the first place that you're you're then offsetting if you like is we would say get someone local that's respected by the local communities as part of your advisory panel mm. that might be difficult to have those conversations in the short term, because it's not what you're used to, it's not voices you're used to consulting with, but in the long term, you'll be embedded in that community and you'll be providing um, opportunities for everyone in that community to grow, not, as you say, just as cleaners or, 
you know, unseen staff. You want those local communities, not just that you go and visit, you know, a tribe locally, but actually that you're there supporting that tribe. You know, if you go on holiday to that local area and stay with that particular brand, you know that your money is actually helping to level that community up, as we say that underpinning principle of sustainable development is leave no one behind. So really we want to be benefiting those marginalised communities that don't have access to international monetary systems very often or that they're, they're living within their local community. So if you can divert your money to them, it has a huge, huge positive impact. Can you think of uh, somewhere in the world that are doing that uh, in a way that might inspire others? Yeah, I think there is a lot of, um, actually Phineas was um, interviewed on Natalie's podcast that you mentioned earlier. And I, I adore Phineas. Phineas is in Africa and he does an awful lot around, a lot of work around um, sustainability within communities. I think there's a lot happening in Africa with um, not enough. There's always not enough. Um, but where travel companies are starting to consult with local communities um, rather than it being um, a secondary thought. We want these things to be really part of the development process. And, and honestly, as we mentioned earlier, when we're talking about these indigenous voices and also actually I'll tell you another thing, Samir Waba from the World Bank I interviewed recently and he sits on disaster and urban urban and disaster management i think so he sits on a huge 30 trillion ton probably the wrong figure but it feel I, i feel like that was the amount of um his portfolio and he looks at when there's disaster or sustainable um issues in communities and he um now when they go into these communities so this is a real shift in concerned about water immediately because that's obviously after air you know life-threatening And then after that, they're looking at women. Mm. And I think that's really changed. I think that narrative has. So when they're coming into an area with big um, money to look, you know, if there's been floods in an area or something, first of all, it's, you know, water and then food. But it's women. How vulnerable are the women in these places? And, and they when they're looking at how they resolve a disaster, it's not they bring indigenous voices in to consult with and women are at the heart of that concern because women we are very underrepresented in the conversation normally and of course when women are impacted negatively children are as well and so we have to get that right on a global scale and so so that those conversations from such big authorities are happening now with the consult of of local which of course is daft it should have been happening that way in the first place but that that's happening now gives me a lot of hope yeah you know it seems like almost as humans we always have to to try things the wrong way and then we understand how, how to make it right yes, a lot of uh, the listeners of this podcast and also my clients are global citizens that are very well traveled and then they fall in love with a place and they want to start a project there but they want to do it in a respectful responsible way And a lot of times people just do something for other expats, other nomads, other travelers. And then you almost create those privileged bubbles that are, you know, maybe in Mexico, in Thailand, in Bali. Uh, but then once you're a little bit more established, you start looking around you and say, oh, you know, but I am in this beautiful country and how can I make this place better by being here and not only use their resources and their beautiful land and that's something that it's really beautiful to see how people are shifting their mindset 
but yeah it still feels like we can do more like just like you said mm, I, I do and I think I, I'm really heartened by digital nomads and the projects that are coming out of of this um, non-office-based working in that I think we talked about this sort of five years ago about travel and how what would that look like now because of course travel affords each of us the ability to empathize with what's happening in the world so it's a really important education tool in in sustainable development because how can you save what you don't understand or or know how to visualize how can you care enough um but of course that's a huge carbon footprint if you're you know whipping over to africa for a week so actually this going for a long time staying there working there living there embedding yourself spending your money locally this is perfect and and it's you know a lovely way to live as well. I'm hoping to start doing that myself in as soon as my daughter's finished college. Oh, okay. Let me know when. Yeah, I want to go to Costa Rica. Actually, I mentioned Costa Rica, but I want to go to Costa Rica to learn because obviously they've had sustainability at the heart of their government through the years. And there's lots of the Bri Bri tribe there, the women's tribe there. I want to go and learn from as well that deal with the, um, the cacao. Hmm. What is this tribe? Can you share a bit more about that? I'm curious if you don't mind. The which, sorry? The, the tribe that you mentioned. I'm not familiar with oh, that. Oh, the Bree Bree. I don't know loads about them. I, I mean, I do, but I'm not an authority. I've been researching for my own. But but they um, are down south and they work with um, making um, the chocolate in, and um, coffee in particular they make down there. And there's lots of initiatives, actually. And again, this is another one where they've put... Um, women have taken control of their own um, finances and their own destiny um, in these female operated uh, plants down there and they produce coffee and it's all sold in locally actually as well which is another thing with coffee that a lot of people don't realize of very often and chocolate very often um, indigenous um, producers of coffee or the chocolate have no idea what they taste like mm. whereas in because it's just produced to export so it, it, they have no idea um whereas um uh costa rica's had um a leveling up sort of program going on for a while and they um it's really sold at you know premium price in costa rica as well across the island you wouldn't call it an island but across the country and um and the women give talks on it, and, and it's a good export that is being produced in a very sustainable, long-term thinking way. So I think, you know, more of that that we can get going, the better, really. And there's an awful lot of, um, I wouldn't dare to speak on it, but there's more um, cultural female association to the plants there as well. So they, I couldn't speak as an authority on that at all, but it's part of their sort of cultural heritage. Fascinating. I've been there, but I haven't been to, to this tribe. Okay, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> I'll send you some information. Uh, thank, thanks for sharing. Yes, please. I'm always curious to learn more. You know, when I was in Guatemala, I was visiting uh, this village of women who are expert in dyeing textile. Mm. And they had this one plant that was really interesting. Then when you harvest it on a full moon, uh, you can extract blue. But mm. if you do it any other day of the month, it will be gray, which is really mind blowing for me. So yeah. it seems like they haven't been, they don't have that distance from nature, just like you said, mm. and they still know how to adapt, you know, even looking at the same plant, just knowing when to harvest it. When to extract the color. It's so wise. Yeah, it's incredible. And the more I deal with um, indigenous tribes, I'm privileged enough to have conversations with on 
many things, but generally for me, it comes back to sustainability. And, and this passed down law, the LORE, before it became LAW written. And they, um, and that tends to be passed in all tribes, of course, but um, it, it's very often passed down the female line. So it's passed from woman to woman, mm-hmm. uh, the information, and that's verbal. So you have to know the whole. And so very often it's done in songs and stories so that it, so that it sits in, locks in and, and is kept true, um, over the years. And, um, and they have so much knowledge of, um, farming techniques that we've forgotten. And these things, like you say, of harvesting on, on the moon that can sound bonkers. But if you look at things like algae bloom, so you can have, um, if you look at, um, coral reefs, or crabs, you know, these, I don't think it's crabs, but they will spawn or they will do it. And when you think, gosh, is it the tide that's causing it? And science has looked at, you know, various different papers have looked into it. And you think, is that what's causing it? Because the tides are linked to the moon and maybe it's that. And actually it turns out that actually because, um, because nature is just so phenomenally resilient, it's always looking at, you know, success comes from, the most successful way of doing it and so they repeat that so yeah um as with our dna and our evolution and so um what they now think and obviously i haven't looked at the paper more recently but that it's actually because there's more light on that night and so the success rate is higher because that's the night that you can you know that the species can see more to meet up and mate and and so that's why it's done then it's not because of some mythical sort of reason it's because they don't want to waste the opportunity so they wait for the best possible um results and that's when there's a full moon so yeah (laughs) and so it makes sense that you you know that it would impact other other plants as well and the dyeing and the colors you know same goes for trees for when you harvest trees Mm. then there's the are you familiar with silverwood I know. No, so apparently also the trees has different cycles. So when I was in Costa Rica, actually, I asked people, how do you deal with termites? Because it seems like they, they do have a lot of problems with, you know, the nature there is so alive that they do have a mm. lot of problems with incense. And then one local guy told me that they harvest trees um, on the new moon because that's when the tree, you know, it fills with it. I don't remember the name now. The tree is filled with uh, it's filled with these liquids, right? That the sticky stuff. So whenever yeah. with the moon cycle, the tree also sap. sap. Yes, yes, I forgot this <laughs> word. Okay, so the trees are uh, filled with sap, and then apparently uh, it also responds to the moon cycle. So if you cut down the tree on the new moon when it has the least amount of sap, it will be less attractive for termites and other insects to be so much sense. Right. So it's the same tree. It took it, I don't know, 20, 30 years to grow. We can wait another two weeks. Can you imagine going into a wood shop and ask, when was this tree harvest? I think this is the future. And how incredible. And that's what I mean by indigenous knowledge. Like I didn't know that. And and if you go, if anyone, I've been lucky enough to go on safari and the guides or on a trip and the guides, you know, who will be local and you just, you can't believe that there's so much knowledge that you wouldn't have even thought to ask. And, you know, the incredible learnings that you can have, you know, if you're a business and you're working locally, and I'm sure all of your um, uh, listeners would do that anyway. But to really sit and listen to the local knowledge is just mind boggling. Like, who would have known that about the tree? And, you know, in in the UK, for instance, they now talk about weeping willows, which I love because they absorb so much um, mm. water. And I think eucalyptus are the same. And so you have to be careful where you plant them yeah. because it's so much 
soft water. And of course, that's new to us. But I'm sure we knew it in the past. We just have forgotten it. So now we have to have a science paper to prove it. Whereas previously, we just knew, you know, don't (laughs) plant that near a waterway or somewhere that is vulnerable. You know, so I think we've lost a lot of the knowledge that we need to to reclaim. Mm -hmm. And we should treasure those communities that are still holding on to that knowledge. Yes, yes, we should. And, you know, that people being curious about traveling to remote places and, and connecting to that knowledge, that's a good sign. Mm, yes, I think so. Yeah, and we have to be uh, yeah careful of um, the imperialistic um, approach to acquiring that knowledge. I think there's an, a, a really um, um, a strong sort of lesson for each of us, really, in understanding the culture. We have to be really um, aware of how we acquire that knowledge because um, imperialistic or colonial sort of ways of acquiring knowledge is not what we're looking for right now it's about listening hearing including the indigenous cultures not um approaching the knowledge to consume it's something that we should be learning not something that we should be looking to export it's it's different in each space both empathetic and sympathetic when we're going into different um regions i think we just need to be really um our way of learning is not always respected by those that are um are offering or that those have that have the most amount of knowledge that we need to hear from often our way of hearing that is not a way that's going to get them to share the information with us if you had to to choose one thing one piece of advice uh, for someone who can implement that in a new or existing project what would that be Um, obviously I come at projects, um, strategies from a sustainability perspective. So I would, um, the world's changing regardless of where you are. The world is changing. Uh, if we go back to that conversation at the beginning around the responsibility of organizations and communities to being more than just maximizing for shareholders. Um, I, I would ask that we look at a lens of what the world will be in 15 years time and the legacy that you want to leave behind because if it's changing and you're basing your models on what has happened it might make your own project sustainable so looking at the principles of you know just loosely you could refer to the uh, the united nations sustainable development goals and just it's very unlikely that you'll be able to tick all of them It's more about understanding the connectivity of all of those um, goals, the sustainable development goals, rather than seeking them out in silos. We need to start thinking in a multidisciplinary way. So we're not just thinking, right, I'll do water now and right, I'll do carbon now. We need to understand the relationship between those things in the space that you're in. So using a framework like sustainable development goals to to really ask yourself how am I doing on each of these points and you want to get the the best possible score on each of those that you can not just kind of I'm going to do brilliantly on carbon right now but I'm not going to worry about everything else what we need is you're doing you know you're doing great on carbon and that you're considering how you impact all the way through your supply chain and can you do better in that space and can you look at more marginalized or or you know offering 
local indigenous people seats at the table women that might not otherwise be offered the opportunities how can you look at doing better across the board how can you reduce your water consumption so it's really having that broad stroke look at all of the ways that the anthropocene is impacting negatively on equity of natural resources not just how seeing it through that um, economic lens but also the the moral compass of of how um our lives should or could impact others better including you know that stakeholder group would be future generations current generations globally the global north to the global south future generations the planet itself and every species on it as a stakeholder as well okay i love that it's a big ask (laughs) yeah you know just so just do that and you'll be fine (laughs) but honestly (laughs) even just sitting down and saying okay what are the sustainable development goals there's lots of literature on there. Okay, sit down and look at what are those sustainable development goals? What do they mean in the space I'm in? Do a bit of research, see, um, you know, it is complex if you're looking at it from a big um, macro perspective. But if you're applying it on a micro level and you're taking advice from local communities and understanding the local nature, it won't be that difficult to think, oh, okay, we're putting a a bar over here. Well, we should employ somebody local. We should make sure we're bringing local drinks in where that's going to reduce our carbon footprint. That's going to make sure that we're leveling up the community, make sure that, you know, if we're bringing tourists and they understand this is the bar to be spending money in because this is the one that really impacts all the locals. And by the way, if you want to donate to a project locally, this is the project that the locals would like you to donate to. You know, that it's these sorts of um, making the problems visible so that, we can direct that money more broadly to support globally the the things on which we're all dependent and are so beautiful. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I will share the links to your website and to your uh, LinkedIn profile on the show notes. It's been such an honor and a great pleasure to have this conversation with you, Ilana, today. Oh, likewise. It's really lovely to come and talk to you. And I love the movement that you've created yeah it's really really special i hope my daughter um who's now 16 i hope that she goes off and does a lot of this sort of stuff as well thank you that's very kind of you okay so before we go there is one last question that i ask all of my guests it's more of a theoretical one so it's called the wild napkin okay ready Mm -hmm. yeah all right so uh you go into a bar and let's say that you drink And you have a couple of drinks and your mind is really free. And all of a sudden, you have the craziest idea. But all you have is a napkin. So you write it down. What does it say? Oh, gosh, the craziest idea on a napkin. Um, There is no time. I really should have thought about this. No, it's the best when you you don't prepare. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so there's no time limit there's no budget limit you can do anything but it's your idea i think i um i think i'd do vice versa i think i would have the global leaders walk in the footsteps in the shoes of those that they are least connected to in the world to get a better perspective and better empathy on the world i think i would have them sort of swap places for a bit so that those that are being impacted so negatively by the choices that we make should have to empathize with the global leaders but i think 
a better understanding for the journey that each of us have come on would help us to resolve conflict more readily. Wow. Okay, I love this idea. I think it's brilliant. It's like the reality check retreat. Okay, if you say you say that you care, come and have a look how it looks like. Do you think we like. could do it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Download all of the knowledge that that person has. So all of that kind of cultural biography of their life so that they kind of download it in some magical way when they arrive so that they get to actually live the experience not just the physical right now but the the um the ancestral um inheritance of the stories or sufferings and and how that carries on or the experience of how connected they were to nature that they're now prevented from doing as with the so many indigenous tribes globally but in particular the ones in Australia that I speak to and it's you know how how in a not so distant past um it was very very different and that there's a window of opportunity to return back to that if if we can get leaders to see that beauty the beauty in not bigger being better necessarily all the time in that it's not about profit maximization it's not about growth sometimes just being you said this biggest luxuries and the going and spending time in nature it doesn't need to be what you may have thought it was um maybe you haven't experienced as much as a person that's experiencing karma existence they may not have as much um that you value but maybe you just don't know how to value the thing that they have and you would if you spent time in their shoes That, that's amazing yes okay let me know when it happens i want to come along for the ride <laughs> if you could get that ability to brain download that would be great <laughs> a few years from now it's going to be possible probably <laughs> looking back at this yeah it would be great wouldn't it just to feel what they feel <laughs> Amazing. Yelana, thanks a lot for being my guest today. And thanks whoever joined us today uh, for spending your time with us. And until the next time, go out and talk to strangers. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi again. I hope you liked today's episode. If you learned something new, make sure to pay it forward and share it with someone in your network that might like it as well. Follow the show and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you have a thought or a question regarding today's episode, go to the New Movement website. That's www.thenewmvt.com and use the contact form to leave us a comment. Thank you for being part of the change. I'll see you next time.